Welcome back to Highly Respected's IQ Supplements. I'm your host, Scott Gray, and today we're, of course, going to have another incredible episode, and it's a year-in-a-review episode. This is combining this week's Highly Respected and this week's IQ Supplement for one incredible show, so hopefully you guys enjoy. I didn't have a normal Highly Respected episode because, you know, it's the holidays. We all had a very Merry Christmas and, you know, there's not that much news to talk about as well. So I just decided to combine all the topics into just one big IQ supplement this week that's going to be free and unlocked for everyone. So if you're listening to this, you did not need to be a paid subscriber to our Substack. You could have just been an average Joe or a average Greer head wanting to sign up and listen. So today we're going to discuss the year that was the year that was 2022. The big news events, what we can learn from them, and where do we go forward from here. This was quite the year, and I do not want to say that this, or I would say an overall theme for 2022, is that it should provoke a reassessment among the right, among the American right, about where we are and how to go forward, because mostly from, especially from the internet rights perspective, but even the mainstream right, even the general American conservative right, it was mostly a year of setbacks or a year of predictions that did not come true or analysis that was off the mark for most of this year. And I think we could take lessons from this. Of course, it's never over. I don't ever want to say, oh, it's over. Time to fully black pill. I am never on that mindset. As long as we're here and as long as we're educating the world about the truth, we're still going forward. But I feel that there are times that you need to reassess what we're doing and correct errors in our ways. And that's mainly what the point of this podcast is going to be. But it's also going to be reviewing what happened and what we learned from those events and the big events. So I think the best way to begin this year in review is talking about the big news event that was still very present at the beginning of the year, but is now gone. Unfortunately so. And I would say this is COVID hysteria. Now it's still there. COVID hysteria is still there. There are still a few people out there who still mask in their cars, uh, still refuse to go outside, but those are a very small minority. Most of America has gotten over COVID, which is very different from the beginning of the year. If you go back just even to late last year, you know, COVID hysteria was returning. Uh, lockdowns were going in place. Schools were canceling classes. Everyone, mass mandates were everywhere. And so were vax mandates. You know, there was a huge battle over vax mandates. And all that was dominating the discourse at the start of the year. You know, there were some hints that they may try to finally move on from COVID hysteria. You know, they're talking about, oh, you know, the Omicron variant isn't as bad as it was before. And, you know, the vaccines are actually working. You know, they're trying to claim. But they were still... You know, if you went out, you know, in certain areas, you know, certain yeah, grocery stores everywhere else, everyone's masked, everyone's, you know, in histrionics over the over the virus and the administration and the Democratic Party is still, you know, hammering home how we need to be frightened of COVID until the end of time. But that changed over the years. And I think it's due to a couple different factors. One is that Biden and Democratic leaders realized that this was politically disastrous for them, I think that the big reason that Democrats underperformed in 2021 elections and it looked like the 2022 midterms were going to be a slaughter at the beginning of the year is oh, is due to exhaustion and hostility towards this 
continuing COVID hysteria with the lockdowns and the mandates. People were tired of it. People had had enough. Basically, by the time that they tried to bring this stuff back in the summer of 2021, people didn't want to go back, but they forced this on people. And I think a lot of those lockdown and mandate hysteria is why Glenn Youngkin won in Virginia and why Republicans nearly won in deep blue New Jersey in the governor's race that year. That was and Biden was seeing these numbers and there and his well, not really Biden, but his handlers were seeing these numbers and like, um, you know, I think it'd be better if we finally moved on and also the economy needs this. There's like a economic, huge economic repercussions that could happen by us continuing this. And they were also seeing like Ukraine and in the war in Ukraine, you know, these guys were out there fighting in the trenches, not masked. You know, Ukraine actually has a low uh, vaccination rate. And it seemed like, uh, you know, we can't be in hysteria over here about, you know, not maintaining six feet distance apart and all that nonsense while we're forcing, you know, all these Ukrainians to be close together and fight in trenches without mask on. And um, at the same time in America, we're like, we can't even go outside without a mask or and we have to be six feet apart even outside. So I think it's all these factors combined, but it's mainly the political and economic consequences of maintaining this hysteria. Biden looked at it and realized this was going to be, you know, he looked at the 2021 results and he realized that Democrats were killing his own chances, you know, his party's chances in the midterms and even his hopes for uh, re-election in 2024. And he had promised that when he became president that COVID would be over and he tried to declare a victory over COVID in late spring of 2021. But Democrats are just so hysterical about this that they forced, you know, the admin and others to go back into uh, the lockdown hysteria. And you have to remember is that at the beginning of this year, the whole admin was still like masked up <laughs> in like public events. And they haven't done that for several months. And I think this is a very good thing. And life has returned largely to the way it was prior to COVID, at least when it comes to uh, you know, most of that nonsense. I mean, you definitely see more people wearing masks now than you would have in 2019, but life seems to be, have returned to normal for most people. And I think that played a significant factor in the midterms, which will be another big topic that we'll discuss, uh, later on in this podcast about the big subjects. We have about, um, you know, there's about three or four big topics. I think the end of COVID one, Ukraine, uh, in the the nature of the globalist American empire, Trump and the midterms are probably the big four issues that we're going to toss. But, you know, COVID is no longer a major factor in our society. I mean, it's still a factor in East Asia. You know, China has reporting more cases, but that's also, I don't know, we should always be uh, skeptical of what's going on in China. And it's also a, maybe a factor in their stupidity that they're trying to do. And maybe they're trying to say that there's like, oh, there's a new greater COVID threat in order to better control the population and get the population committed to these insane co uh, zero COVID policies that China's trying to implement. Who knows? But for America and the West and Europe, you know, COVID is over. And even thinking about this, you know, you had the truckers protest in Canada earlier this year, which people have all forgotten about. You know, there's all these big events that people forget about. But those trucker protests were all about COVID and the lockdowns and the mandates that was hurting ordinary Canadians 
And there was this massive protest in the truckers, you know, the blocking interstates, blocking highways, blocking up uh, the capital city. And all this was going on over COVID. And even Canada, you know, they did have some effects is that, you know, the national government began to, you know, back away from some of the insane stuff. Not entirely, but a lot of these provinces also began backing away and retracting some stuff. But then they really cracked down on those trucker protesters. And uh, one funny thing is, that you'll realize this as like a, as a common theme, as right-wing Twitter's reaction to it when there was like a crackdown was urging guerrilla war and like these more extreme steps that these truckers were going to go into. And even people tried to deny that the protests were over after they were, you know, the, the government cleared them out. And so if you read right-wing Twitter, you thought all these truckers were going to engage in guerrilla war and do other types of crazy stuff, but then they didn't, you know, it petered out and they're like, oh, the, the protest is still going on. And the, you know, the truckers were instead like parked at some remote farm, um, far away from living area. But apparently that was the same as them blocking all the roads in Ottawa. <laughs> but for whatever it was worth, it did gain results, but ultimately people forgot about it as a lot of people forgot about these, you know, huge stories that are major events that people will remember for till the end of time and it'll go down in history. I mean, there were several speeches from Liz Cheney that people were like, this is going to go down in history. Uh, people forgot about Liz Cheney uh, by the end of the year. Um, and I, something I predicted. So there's just all these interesting things, but you got to think is that, you know, uh, so it's not just America that got over COVID, it was most of the world, even though Canada is still more extreme and, and, and idiotic than we are. But for, throughout the entire West, people have moved on from COVID. And, but at the beginning of this year, people were wanting to do massive protests about this, even when there's, you know, attempt to do a trucker protest in America over the lockdowns and the mandates. But, uh, that didn't go anywhere. It's like most, as like most attempts at Americans trying to imitate uh, foreign protests, like there was really hilarious attempts to imitate the yellow vest protests in 2019, which I think the only attempt at it was one of these black influencers who I think is now like a, a liberal, but she was, you know, being promoted by the alt light and new right people like that. And she's like, we're starting a yellow vest protest. And it was like her and some Mexican guy going into like child services to demand custody or a kid. And it's like, this is yellow vest protest. And it was just like this one crazy black lady and like a Mexican guy filming her. And that was like the American yellow vest protest. It just turns into a grift. And even the American trucker protests, uh, trucker convoy turned into a grift as well. A uh, lesson in there for that, but all that stuff was still animating the discourse at the beginning of the year, but now it's not. And that's a good thing, but it also has political implications and economic implications for, and of course, social implications for where Americans are at and the mood that they're feeling uh, towards the country and the trajectory, which we'll go into more when it comes to the midterms. Now, the second big topic is Ukraine, which I will admit a lot of people got this conflict wrong. I think I, I will even admit I got a lot of things wrong. I remember doing a podcast on Ukraine in, I think it was December 
of 2021. It was like me and Nemitz, and we talked about, or it could have even been November 2021. It was after, it was after the elections in 2021. It was late 2021 when we did this, and we're like, yeah, we don't think there's going to be a war. You know, Russia won't invade. That'll be really costly. He's just doing some brakemanship to wring concessions from Ukraine and from NATO and the, uh, the West. They're not going to be in a war. But about a month before, I think it was in January, a month later, I was like, I think they actually may go to war. I mean, Putin, has, like, first off, there's no, I realized that there's no serious concessions being given to Putin. Like, all they offered was like, well, we won't give you anything on Ukraine, but we can talk about weapons reductions, which is not at all what Russia wanted. And then, you know, Russia had built up this whole military force around Ukraine's border, and he had you know, he would look like a total wimp if he just didn't invade. And he, of course, invaded. Now, so it was about a month before. People were still doubting that a war would happen even a week before it happened, uh, before they invaded, which... So I was a little bit earlier on that they would invade. But I was also overconfident of how Russia would do in this war. I, you know, had people on, talked with uh, various people who had observed this conflict and thought that Russia would easily steamroll over Ukraine. That a lot of the Ukrainian army would just surrender because they got bribed by the Russians. And, you know, this war would be over in, uh, you know, a few weeks. Obviously, that was wrong. And even when the war happened, people were like, wow, Russia is really crushing it. And if you were reading online right resources and even Telegram, it looked a lot more favorable to Russia. Now, the granted, uh, I think another theme to go off of is that in 2021, and really years past, right-wing Twitter sphere or the right-wing online sphere was a good source of information that you wouldn't get in the mainstream media, whether it was what's going on in the various things going on in 2020, the riots, COVID, uh, even stuff with the election. Uh, and then, you know, going on into 2021, information about inflation, what may happen in those elections coming up. Uh, COVID and vaccines, all that stuff we were preparing a lot of alternative information that people were getting uh, nowhere else. And the mainstream media was uh, directly lying to people. Not saying the mainstream media is still is no longer lying to people, but this year in 2022, right-wing Twitter was wrong about so many things that were going on in the country that, you know, when you take, you know, on a scale of mainstream media versus the online right, uh, it's a little bit more equal than we should want it to be. I mean, of course, there are some topics the mainstream media completely lies about. I mean, like the border crisis and crime that obviously right-wing Twitter is much more accurate on. But things like Ukraine and the even what inf issues are going to impact the midterms. But even the mainstream media was uh, confident that Republicans were going to win in the midterms. So... You know, they were on the same page there, but I'll go on more into that and these topics. But when it comes to Ukraine, um, the right was really wrong about, including myself. I'm, I'm, I'm still in this category, even though I finally took a clear pill about the conflict, I believe in September, uh, I think late September, early October. It's, that's, um, I was wrong about a lot of things. So when the war got on, we were like, oh, this is gonna be huge. Uh, challenge to the globalist American empire. Globalist American empire is fading. There was also predictions that Europe would, you know, dither and not want to punish Russia because so much of their energy supply depended on Russia. Well, we were wrong on that and that 
Europe went full bore with these sanctions against Russia, even though it was crippling their own economy and their energy supply. Uh, one thing that did pan out is that, uh, in terms of predictions from our sphere, is that Russia was able to withstand these sanctions that were placed on them much better than expected. You know, everyone thought that their economy was going to be completely wiped out. The economy is, uh, for, and, and relatively speaking, is doing well under the circumstances. And the sanctions have not really crippled them that uh, Westerners hoped that would happen. But otherwise, the war effort has not been going well. And as I want to repeat from the takes I was saying in September, Russia is... Not winning this war. Now, whether they're saying that's losing is another matter. Cause I really, it's hard to say that Ukraine is winning the war because Ukraine is a ruined state. I mean, their whole energy infrastructure is like just ruined. They've lost tens of thousands of lives, even though they try to downplay the amount of casualties they have. Uh, you know, they try to claim that there's more, been more civilian deaths than soldier deaths. Um, that's uh, clearly not true. They've also, you know, there's, they've lost a lot of critical, you know, parts of their country, uh, a lot of critical parts of their agricultural uh, uh, supply or areas that produce their agricultural supply and many other things. So it's, it's hard to say that Ukraine is winning when, and they probably will not dislodge the Russians from the positions Russia currently holds. But otherwise, Russia's main goals in this war were, are not going to be accomplished. One, it was to install a friendlier government within in Ukraine and to bring Ukraine back in the Russian sphere. That is absolutely not happening under any circumstances. I'm pretty confident that that will not happen. Uh, even with uh, winter offensive, this supposed winter offensive that may happen, I'm a little bit doubtful or skeptical of those claims now. Even though it still could happen, I think it would be mostly about regaining lost territory, especially in these uh, pro or these oblasts that Russia has claimed to have annexed, rather than taking out the government. They're not going to be able to take out the government. Uh, they tried to do that in Kiev. Uh, and I think the right didn't want to admit it when they retreated from Kiev and that whole area that that was a major defeat rather than like, oh, they're refocusing on other areas of conflict, which they did. And they were having some success after retreating from Kiev. But otherwise, the main goal, that one main goal uh, didn't happen. Also, keeping Ukraine out of the West orbit and keeping them out of NATO Obviously, I don't think that's going to happen. Ukraine may not be formally welcomed into Ukraine in the near future, but, you know, the West, the entire West is still going to be continuing to give them military supplies, giving them funding and keeping them firmly in the Western orbit. That is, um, those major goals are just not going to happen of the war. Or even one is like demilitarizing Ukraine, which was always a major goal that was stated by Russian leaders. Instead, it's going to be even more militarized and their whole economy is going to be based on military uh, because that's going to be most of the Western aid going towards them. That's going to be where you can you know, scam off money from all this Western aid. That's why all these Ukrainian leaders are making so much money from this aid coming from the West. You know, it's going to be even more militarized or it's going to be I wouldn't say more militarized, but it's going to be very militarized. Uh, going forward. So Ukraine, that was a huge goal. Now, can Russia still uh, retain or gain these territories it claims it annexed? I think that's still very possible. And I think also Russia is not going to give up 
Crimea, and it's not going to give up Donetsk and Lugansk under any circumstance, unless like the Putin regime is about to fall. Are, and if they do give up and retreat entirely from Ukraine, like there's bigger problems going on in Russia. I don't think that's going to happen. But that's still not a major victory. And in some ways, that's a Pyrrhic victory rather than, you know, this huge defeat and this huge challenge to the gay. And I think over time that the real winner of this war is neither Russia nor Ukraine, but America. America has won so much from this war, which just by handing out billions of dollars to Ukraine. Now, of course, I oppose that. And most of you, the listeners probably oppose that. But let's see what America has gained with that. They have shown America, or not America, but Russia to be a much weaker power than people thought. It's bogged down Russia into this conflict and had, you know, economic repercussions for them and made them, you know, far weaker on the global stage. And most importantly, it is wrung European Europe from dependence on Russia and made them far more dependent on America, both politically, economically, you know, all their energy supply is now going to have to depend on America. You know, we blew up the Nord Stream pipelines <laughs> to in further reinforce that Europe is going to be extremely dependent on us and within our sphere and American hegemony is only going to be strengthened over Europe while Russia is going to have far less influence over Europe in the future than it was before they invaded Ukraine. That's another big loss from Russia is that Russia, it, you know, Russia invaded Ukraine to probably also, you know, send a signal to Europe is like, hey, we're the boss now of the continent. You're dependent on us. You're going to have to work more with us. We're the strongest military power on this continent. America won't help you. Instead, the opposite message was sent to Europe. Europe learned that America, they need to be more dependent on America militarily, economically, politically. All of Europe is just now far more under America's thumb than it was before the invasion. And Russia is pretty much isolated from the rest of the continent. And, you know, its economic connections with Europe are going to be severed for a quite a long time after this war. I mean, I don't think uh, the Nord Stream pipelines are are ever going to be producing uh, what Russia expected. And they invested billions of dollars into that. And we blew it up. Or some Western power, maybe Britain or somebody, blew it up to hurt Russia. And Russia couldn't even retaliate. And that's mostly much of the conflict is that we're giving intelligence and even coordinating assassinations of generals and attacks on naval ships. And Russia is incapable of responding. So we're really showing... Uh, us after the humiliating withdrawal from Afghanistan, which even I supported the withdrawal in Afghanistan, and I felt that that withdrawal would have just been as bad no, ma no matter what the circumstances were. Uh, it was just something to take. You know, outside of the withdrawal from Afghanistan, you know, after the withdrawal of Af from Afghanistan, rather, it really, the Ukraine conflict really, it, insists or reasserts American supremacy on the world stage. It sends a message to China about what it may do with Taiwan and to other powers that, hey, America is still the big dog on the world stage. And Europe obviously listens to that. And Russia is learning that lesson the hard way. So it's been a huge victory for the globalist American empire. Maybe you won't say America, but uh, and the losers are really more Ukraine and Europe. 
Uh, Russia may be more of a neutral or a draw. I mean, you could say Ukraine gains a victory in a, if their main goal is to resist Russian control over the country. I think they're going to accomplish that for at least most of the country. Uh, I think they at most will lose a fourth uh, of their previous land. Uh, but the, the three-fourths that they retain or more are going to be firmly outside of Russian sphere and Russian influence. And if that was their goal, then they probably are going to achieve that. But if their goal was to have a functioning state that, you know, can keep its people there and not have them flee to the West to, you know, uh, have some degree of economic stability, uh, that goal may not be achieved. And there, Ukraine is in a far worse state than it was before the invasion. And it'll probably be in that state long after the war ends. So I think, and if we go go into the new year with 2023, I think that there's a couple of things to take away. One, I think, you know, I've tried, I'm trying to keep most of the lessons to the end of the podcast, but I think one that needs to come up is the right really needs to get over its Russia cheerleading. I don't think people need to become like hardcore Russia phobes like the mainstream media is and think of them as our main geopolitical foe. I think that's silly. But thinking that like Russia is extremely based and we're we're dependent on Russia to save us, that's just idiotic. This government is weak. They're not capable of effectively challenging the gay. They can they can resist the gay influence within their own borders, but now that to the extent of them being like saving the West or saving uh the real Americans, that's just Stupid. And I, I'm also tired of people like falling for their propaganda. Like when Victor Boot came out of prison, you know, he had this statement that was pretty funny that it was like a major is like, oh, all these Americans are about the genders and, uh, and all these kids are transitioning. And it's like true. But at the end of the day, like Russia is not a social conservative paradise either. And they're not capable of actually influencing or, or impacting our country. And the majority of our people that we're trying to reach are extremely hostile to Russia. That may, that's not, I'm not saying that is a, that's a good or bad thing. I'm just saying that that's the reality. And I think it's like even one poll showed that 83% of Republicans have a negative view of Russia. And those people are not going to change. You're not going to change them. Well, like, well, this guy who's an arms dealer who helped fund like drug dealers and rebels in Africa and, all, and like Muslim gr- um, guerrillas in the Balkans, you know, he's actually based because he, he said he mocked America for having 72 genders. It's like, yeah, okay, that's like easy bait that anyone can attack. Like you might as well just go to Ben Shapiro. It's not that revolutionary for a country to say that. And all the country and Russia is kind of going to this cope about, uh, you know, they used to claim that Ukraine was a denazification operation, which is still like, I want to say this, like even I engaged in that stuff was like, Oh, look at this guy with a, with a black sun patch. And like, how dare we find this? It was like really stupid that the right spent a lot of time getting outraged about like some random Ukrainian soldier with a Totenkopf patch or a Sonnenrad patch. Like who gives a shit? Like, why do we care about this? And it's like, oh, no, Ukrainian Nazis. Oh, no. To be honest, that was like some of the most cringe content the right has produced. I engaged in it to a certain extent, but I disavow it. I think who cares? It's like they're fighting a war and like who are we trying to convince? And it's like some people made this point that like both sides in the Ukraine war were trying to accuse each other of being the Nazis. But 
it's like a further affirmation of Western values and Western uh, prejudices and that. But even that denazification didn't work. So now Russia's moving to destatanification of Ukraine and they're focusing in kind of, I think maybe a little bit too extremely online takes from America. And they're trying to appeal. It's like, oh, this is what Ukraine is about. They're about to have the 72 genders or what have you. And eh, I mean, it's interesting that a state would go on about this, but ultimately they're incapable of influencing and helping us out in our struggle here. And not only are they incapable of doing that, they're uh, by associating yourself with Russia, not only do you invite more attention from, you know, the law enforcement, you know, because and intelligence agencies, because they're very much insistent on this. It also alienates you from the people you're trying to reach. You don't need to be Russia phobic. I think that that's equally Russia phobia is equally as bad as this like Russia cheerleading and Russia fetishism that we have. But I think that the war should reveal that Russia is not this super base power that's capable of easily conquering Europe in a month. You know, they're not even capable of conquering eastern Ukraine in a year, uh, much less the entire continent. And, you know, it's kind of a corrupt (laughs) incompetent state that can't even win this war and is getting easily destroyed or is easily is getting owned by these transgender drone operators from America, unfortunately. So I think it's just, you know, stop relying on these foreign powers to be based and cool. And everyone's like always like, oh, people sometimes go into like base North Korea. It's like, no, North Korea is not based. I'm sorry. Let's stop worshiping all these shithole third world countries and focus on ourselves and how we can make lives better here. Because associating with these like 10 pot third world countries, I don't wouldn't say Russia is a third world country, but associating with these like foreign powers just alienates us from the ordinary, you know, good, good sense, common sense Americans we're trying to reach and trying to win over to our side. And that's the main goal. I think a big thing is foreign policy stuff and these these geopolitical struggles are very interesting. But I think that they have less impact on our domestic situation than people think. And we shouldn't look to salvation through these conflicts. I don't think if Russia had like an easy victory in Ukraine that it would have really impacted our situation in America. Maybe in Europe, different story. But in America, I don't think it would have had a major impact. And I think that going forward, we really need to just focus more on the America itself and how we can gain power here and make our lives better and make positive change here rather than looking towards Russia or China to make that difference for us. Another thing that has disappeared from this year, at least from posting, is crypto. Uh, At the beginning of the year and even going into last year, everyone was still talking about crypto as like this is the solution to economic problems. You know, it's it's recession proof. And even if the market goes down, crypto stays stable and there's all these various shit coins that are going to be the future of the market and crypto uh, took a major hit this year uh you know but even before ftx uh you know the whole scandal broke later this year and and sbf got arrested everyone was still like you know the market was plummeting people i really saw like even in 2021 when the market would decline or in 2020 you know you'd always see all these memes coming out like oh my god crypto is collapsing or these coins i bought like it's gone down i lost so much money 
Uh, I'm no longer holding or in this stuff. And people made these memes and then you jump back up. I saw crypto posting just like decline. And even people as using like recommending crypto as like advice of like things to do is like make yourself self-sufficient. Like get out of the cities and invest in crypto. People have stopped doing that <laughs> just because of how bad uh, crypto has done this year. It may, maybe it can come back, but I think it uh, did... A lot of what right-wing theories about crypto and its sustainability uh, took a major hit this year. And I don't see as much crypto posting on our side as I did a year ago or two years ago. I mean, and it's been a consistent thing that people have been posting about for many years. Uh, but this is the year that I think people were like, oh, shit, maybe a lot of the things we've been saying about crypto aren't true. Now, some people are still engaged in it, some people, and it still may make you a lot of money. But I always think that like the way to have made money on crypto was to invest in it uh, before 2016, maybe even before 2017, and got in on the ground floor early and then sold it off when it was at high prices and then run off with the money. Uh, now I don't think it is as uh, valuable of, of a product or product, as you would say, or of an investment as it would have been before it really took off. So getting involved in it in the first half of the 2010s or just really before 2017, uh, but, you know, before it hit, started hitting, you know, its high prices or its high value would have been very smart. You would have made a lot of money. I know people, I know of people who've made a ton of money off of crypto because they invested in really early on. Uh, but now it doesn't seem as um, wise of investment. It could come back. I know it's not a, really a topic I discuss much because I haven't had much interest in it. <laughs> I feel like some of that lack of interest has been justified by this year's events uh, with FTX and SB, SBF. And then a lot of this stuff that is involved in crypto has been just a, an elaborate Ponzi scheme, as we saw with SBF and FTX. Um, so that's just my thoughts on it. And I've seen the a gradual change. I do think that this is like one thing that the right learned from as uh, to reassess, probably because people were directly impacted on it in their finances. And they're like, oh, shit, you know, I lost a ton of money on this. I'm actually going to rethink this. So if it has a direct impact on people... Uh, you know, people are really willing to reassess in a way that if it doesn't have a direct impact on them, such as the Ukraine war and Russia cheerleading and maybe midterms or even these revolutionary fantasies uh, are how the people's reception towards receptiveness towards those re revolutionary fantasies. There's no real direct impact on changes uh, going on in the larger world on those notions, but something on crypto, you know, if you had a lot of money in your investments and you no longer have that money and you see like major athletes, you know, lose tons, uh, lose a fortune, uh, as happened with Tom Brady on crypto, you know, that does create the conditions for reassessment. So that's just something that I thought that was a long time right wing thing. It turned out to be not as accurate as some people touted it as uh, in years past. Not saying that crypto has no value of whatsoever and you need to abandon it. Some people, it still may be good for them. But I think as this magical fix for a lot of these financial issues are, invest, are the smartest investment you can make, I think that's been uh, disproven by this year's events. On the economic front in general, I think the right, you know, was right 
right was right on this on these matters in 2021 about inflation you know the Biden administration all these officials were like saying oh there's no inflation it's gonna be great there's not even gas shortage like everything's going great how could anyone say this like the economy is just booming you know people in 21 21 were, were right about that but in 2022 uh, you know, there's a lot of predictions. Like I saw some people who are uh, pretty respectable figures on our side and pretty prominent figures who are predicting a famine to happen uh, this year and a complete market collapse and all these doom and apocalyptic scenarios. And none of that happened. In fact, a lot of the inflation did get worse, but it has cooled down uh, from what it was looking like at the beginning of the year and even the economy even though it appears we're in some type of recession it's not as devastating as recession at least not yet it could uh, this could very well change in 2023 so i don't want to be too confident on this but when it comes to 2022 the recession isn't even having an impact where it hurts the party in power <laughs> it's the first time like we're going through what are the conditions for a recession and the party in power um, only loses the house by a thin margin. Uh, you know, they gain a seat in the Senate. It's a, one of the first times that you've seen something like this happen in American history. Generally, if like the economic conditions are poor and you have rising inflation and all this stuff, it should hurt the party in power. But it didn't, it didn't quite have that effect. We're just going through a very weird economic moment because we had, you know, a very bad economy in 2020 due to the lockdowns, you know, a lot of people getting laid off, like restructuring the economy. And we still have like a lot of massive labor shortages. You know, there's any time you drive throughout this country, you know, driving through the country, you know, through Christmas vacation, it's all interesting things. One, gas prices are much lower than they were. You know, I paid for gas twice under two, you know, two fifty. You know, got uh, our stopped at gas stations where gas was under two fifty. Not only did I see that, but I saw so many signs out everywhere. It's like help wanted, help wanted, help wanted, help wanted. Uh, and a lot of these places, sometimes there were skilled trades. Some places it was like the service sector. I mean, service sector still doesn't have enough workers. So does their uh, the case with some other blue collar fields. Uh, you know, it's a weird, very weird labor market. I mean, there's over 100 million Americans who are not in the labor force at the moment. Uh, a lot of people left over COVID. A lot of people are retired after COVID. And, you know, you just, you have the conditions for research. I know there's like a lot of layoffs going on. Um, it's particularly in media. Media, there's a lot of uh, uh, layoffs going on. I know of some other white collar professions where there's layoffs going on but in certain other sectors of the economy you know they can't find enough workers so it's a very weird dynamic going on right now and i think that the economy didn't have quite the effect on uh, the elections or really even the mood of the country is because people have a memory of what 2020 was like and they feel that normality a sense of normality has been restored this year and that creates a much more complacent mood and a much more positive mood among the American public than what it was like in 2020 or even in 2021 where there's like this real anxiety and angst among the public that has mostly dissipated or I wouldn't say disappeared entirely, but it is to an, it is not as prevalent as it was just a year or two years ago, 
when there was a lot of angst and anxiety in 2020 as seen by the riots and just all the craziness going on in that year. And it continued on into 2021 where everyone thought Biden would turn us to normal. Uh, that didn't happen. But now I don't think it would be Biden. But I just think getting past the lockdowns and COVID hysteria has returned a sense of normality. And people are not as aggravated as they were uh, just a short time ago. And I think that factor explains a lot of what we saw in the elections. And the elections, we will talk about more as we go on. But there's a few other issues that I want to discuss. And this even bleeds into the issues. And it's more on what the social issues that came to the fore now this year and how they were different from years past. And what that meant. And that even plays into the elections as well. I mean, the big social issue this year was the abortion ruling, you know, Dobbs ruling the Supreme Court. It was a major deal. I was wrong on a couple different things. Minor ways. One, there was a type of terror campaign that emerged and was launched by the left in the wake of news that the Supreme Court, you know, the leak a month before the Dobbs ruling saying the Supreme Court would likely overturn uh, Roe v. Wade. There were a ton of, uh, you know, pregnancy centers and churches that are involved in the pro-life cause that got vandalized and attacked. And, you know, there's all these like very strong protests outside the Supreme Court justices' homes. There was even an attempted assassination on Brett Kavanaugh, which quickly got covered up and like, oh, this is just normal. You know, he wasn't a real threat. You know, it's like, um, that's a pretty big deal for a Supreme Court justice to have to where the guy got caught with firearms right outside you know the guy you know brett kavanaugh's house and it was only uh you know secret service or federal agents or whoever was guarding the house you know that prevented him from going in it was like very close to assassinating him uh and it got you know it got to his house you know most times i remember a time in 2008 where these uh two skinheads uh, had an assassination plan against Obama. They never got close to him, likely a federal entrapment scheme. And that was such a, that was a major news story for at least two weeks. And they were talking about like, this shows so much of where we are in America and that stuff. And these guys never got near Obama. This was somebody, this guy who tried to assassinate Kavanaugh got right outside his house and they're just like, Oh, well, big whoop. Who cares? And they still protesting outside these justices' home. I thought there would be even an escalation of that after the ruling, but there really wasn't. There's still vandalism and there's still, uh, you know, aggressive protests out the justices' homes, but not to an extent. I thought it would have been something that we saw in Canada over the, um, the, uh, the, the school, the residential school, I think that's what they're called, these Indian schools that they had for Indian kids that they claimed that were uh, genociding the Indians up in Canada, and there was these mass church burnings going on. I thought that we would see something similar. We didn't really, but we still saw those a lot of vandalism. Now, the other thing I was about to say I got wrong, but I actually was right about my instincts. I thought the abortion would impact the election, but not... I didn't want to say it was the decisive issue, and I still think it was not the decisive issue, but it was more important than most people want to think, is that it really energized the Democratic base to turn out to vote. I think it energized a lot of 
younger people to turn out to vote. If you saw those long lines at college campuses, and they've done a lot of articles about all these uh, idiotic college girls who are like, they're going to steal my body. I've got to vote. And so that did motivate. And you, we could, of course, roll our eyes, but it, yes, it did prove to be a motivating vote. I, I would say this. It, and I always argue, made this point, is that if the right was willing to have disappointing results in the midterms in exchange for a long-term goal of the conservative movement, that's a trade a lot of people would make. And I think it would have been more honest if conservatives just made that. Like, we're fine with having a disappointing midterms to achieve something that we've tried to do for 50 years. I think that would have been an honest assessment and I think I could, and I could respect that. But most people didn't want to even make that assessment. They're like, actually, it was really popular. It had no impact on the election, only positive results. And so it, everything was just Trump. Everyone wanted to blame Trump for the midterms. And there was a refusal to acknowledge that abortion impact election and that the pro-life uh, position is not as popular as pro-lifers want to claim. I mean, they always claim like the silent majority, 80% of people want complete bans on abortion. And really it's in fact, uh, the type of abortion bans they want, a complete ban with no exceptions has the support of only like, uh, like 15, 13% of the population. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people who support restrictions, uh, but a complete ban with no exceptions and like 99 years for and or death penalty for abortionists, uh, it's not that popular. Uh, but you would be surprised to learn this. I mean, the pro-life movement, I mean, it's not just the distant right or others who get in a little bit too much on the copium. But for many years, like when I was working in conservative media in the early, mid-2010s, conservatives totally lied to themselves and said, oh, millennials, because at that time, Gen Z was not yet in college. They might, and most of them weren't even in high school. They were like, millennials are actually the pro-life generation. This was demonstrated by no poll, but it was just a fact. It was just a myth passed around conservative media, and people would just repeat it without uh, investigating it. And it turns out that actually young people are the pro-choice generation, if anything. And that's something that you have to change. So... I think it would have been more honest for conservatives to admit that, like, yes, this is going to have some negative effects for us in the elections. And, you know, but we think it's worth it. I think that also the conservative movement, after seeing the elections, they should allow a little bit more leeway for these Republicans to negotiate that issue when it comes to general election. Because they really insist, like, total ban, no exceptions, all Republicans have to be about this, which... Really, they if they want to be realistic and pragmatic and be capable of winning elections where they can then set abortion policy, it should be giving them, like we believe, and restricting it to a certain time period, maybe even the heartbeat bill, like they support a heartbeat bill. But I think mandating a litmus test that all these Republicans have to do, total ban, no exceptions, it really does hurt them when it comes to general elections. And it did have an impact, I know, in Virginia races, because uh, all these races that Abigail Spanberger, who's this former CIA operative who keeps winning elections in competitive races that she shouldn't win, all of her ads against her uh, Latina opponent were about the Latina's abortion extremism that supported a total ban, no exceptions. And it even impacted in Arizona and elsewhere and definitely impacted in Pennsylvania. So you have to make those calculations. I think that they should, if they want to win elections, 
And when these guys get, when a Republican gets elected, they're going to do what most of the realistic legislation that the pro-life movement wants, whether it's defunding Planned Parenthood, uh, voting for any abortion restriction that, you know, and that should be trying, reducing abortions throughout the country should be a win for the pro-life movement. But I think they get, uh, you know, they want to sacrifice the entire Republican movement on behalf of their main goal. And they're not very loyal allies, too. I think there's a lot of problems with the pro-life movement that people don't. This is not I'm not saying the pro-life position. I'm specifically saying the pro-life movement uh, and the organizing apparatus around it. One, they're not loyal. They immediately throw everyone under the bus. They threw the Covington Catholic kids immediately under the bus after they got accused. They immediately disavowed them and denounced them. That day, you know, no wait for an investigation. People don't want to remember that, that the, the March for Life did this. They also threw Steve King, you know, Republican congressman in Iowa, strong conservative, arguably the most pro-life congressman there was, there is, or, well, now there was because he's no longer a congressman. They threw him on the bus, refused to defend him. And this is a guy who always pushed for their legislation. He was at the forefront of doing that. They gave, they told him, fuck, go fuck yourself. They don't defend any loyalty. They're not defending Trump, even though Trump was the most pro-life president we've ever, we've had in, ever since Roe v. Wade. He did far more than George W. Bush. They don't give a shit about defending him. They don't give a shit about anybody. They just focus on themselves and they'll immediately throw everyone on the bus. They also don't really demonstrate that they have, um, that they have much control over the base or really a can win over independent voters, uh, in a way that other factions can. I mean, you have to think is like, Trump was a pro-choicer who then became pro-life, but then they kept finding reasons to complain about him when he was a primary candidate. He won, even though he didn't really focus on the abortion issue. And then when it comes to uh, you know financing, they don't really provide much money. They do provide volunteers. I th- to what extent is a matter of debate. But that's another matter. I think that when you look at these people whose main issue is abortion, they're not even loyal to the Republican Party, even though the Republican Party is the only one fighting for their cause, while Democrats are wanting, like, abortion right up until birth. You know, they're, they're, that is the standard Democratic position. There is no restrictions mindset uh, among Democrats. But all these people, whenever they get in writing, I remember this guy, Patrick T. Brown, who writes for New York Times and he's like a conservative writer. He had this thing. It's like, oh, I'm so tired of Republicans and it's time to vote for Democrats. And all the time they wish that there was a pro-life Bernie Sanders. And it's like, there's never going to be a fucking pro-life Bernie Sanders. Your only hope is the Republican Party. And the reason why the Republican Party did bad was doing the one thing you care about. And the only type of loyalty is like, oh, I want to vote Democrat now. What the fuck are you people doing? There, so I, this is not about people who are pro-life in general. I'm talking about that these is the pro-life movement and some of the people that that's like their number one issue. And I think that uh, Republicans still don't realize that these people have like a lack of loyalty. Like all these Republicans like insist on a Libus test that is – to their T of what they want. And these people still want to vote Democrat because they're like, oh, they don't care enough about families. Democrats are more pro, really more pro-life. And it's like, you know, 
Unfortunately, you have to listen to these people because their positions are going to get them canceled on, like, you know, caring about immigration or civil rights, uh, you know, wanting to repeal the civil rights thing and stuff. So it's just something, uh, observation. I'm not, once again, not attacking pro-lifers, people who are ordinary, those. It's more of just the organizing apparatus and movement that, like, those are the, the organizations involved in it. I don't think that they're a particularly loyal element to the Republicans. And even when you accomplish what they do, they... For some reason, want to vote for Democrat because they feel Republicans are too racist and mean. Uh, so that's just something to keep in mind. That's a little bit of a tangent, but I wanted to use that in this episode. Some people may find that controversial, but I felt I feel it needed to be said about the particular organizing apparatus around the, that abortion issue. But going along onto other social issues is I think a major trend on the right. This year was in 2021, critical race theory and anti-white racism were a huge matter. And they were still pretty big going into 2022. I mean, uh, America First Legal, um, you know, Stephen Miller's outfit, they ran really great ads attacking anti the Democrats' anti-white racism. Tucker still had segments on it. It was still there. But that stuff that too, proved to be a big election winner in 2021... And even it was uh, having an effect in 2020, it got supplanted by concern over trans issues and drag queen story art. Not saying that that stuff is not bad. And this is not even just, this is just an observation. It's not a complaint that some people may uh, be getting riled up by this, but not a complaint, just something observing. I saw that most of the focus went to more of that. And I can even see this with Christopher Rufo. Is Christopher Rufo, he, even though he's blocked me, I still have a sense of what he's talking about. I still check his timeline uh, uh, through incognito mode and other places. He switched to more of a focus on the transgender stuff, uh, the gender ideology, and drag queen story hour. And if you looked at news stories, there was less emphasis on finding like this classroom in Seattle teaches all white people are evil and Aztec religion is is really peaceful and you should we should learn more about it and we should do an Aztec prayer. There was less emphasis on that stuff, still getting covered to probably more of an extent than they was getting covered in say 2017, but not as much in 2021 because most of conservative media and conservative commentators were fixated on drag queen story hour and the transgender stuff. Now I want to say what's politically popular is not just critical race theory. But it is that gender ideology stuff in schools. People, parents really don't want that woke shit in their, in their child schools. Whether the school has indoctrinated them to hate their, the, the color of their skin, just because, hate themselves because they're white, or whether the school's teaching a boy to transition to a girl. Parents really don't like that stuff. That stuff is politically popular for Republicans to run on. Glenn Youngkin shows the example of that. And it, as long as being paired with this stuff about how, you know, emissions process are now disfavoring whites and Asians and switching from a merit-based approach to a race-based approach, that is also very unpopular. And even trying to get rid of math because it's racist because certain minority groups aren't doing well in it, you know, that stuff is very unpopular and it works to the advantage of Republicans and conservatives. 
so when you have the transgender stuff that's coming in the up in the classroom, that is very important and that's pertinent. And people are still focused on that. There was a lot of examples of conservatives highlighting, you know, a parent coming up, up to a school board meeting and talking about, hey, you know, this teacher was trying to transition kid or trying to teach gender theory in my in my sixth graders classroom or there were examples of teachers in schools trying to hide their you know child's gender transition there was a lot of examples of that but it was all uh was secondary to the main focus of drag queen story hour which i will say this drag queen story hour is a very uh depressing fact of american life i think it's very outrageous I have no earthly idea why it has suddenly become popular and you can now find Drag Queen Story Hour everywhere from New York City to rural Texas, even like pretty conservative places in Idaho. Uh, you know, it's everywhere and you're like, what the hell is going on? But an important factor to remember about Drag Queen Story Hour, and this comes to an effect of where Americans are, is that Americans have a very live and let live policy. If it's not being imposed on them, for better or for worse, Americans simply just say, shrug their shoulders and say, okay, this is getting more apparent as time goes on. And most of the drag queen story hours, there are some exceptions where schools would put on something like that. But most of them are private events where idiotic libtard parents take their kids to um, enjoy the degeneracy and filth of that. It's harder to have positive policy legislation about that unless you're just – and Republicans are just kind of – what's the solution to this? Because the main problem is like libtard parents really like the drag queen story hour. I don't know whether it's like a factor of just trying to own conservatives. They're like, oh, conservatives are really owned here. I think that is a factor or if they just really enjoy drag queens and they want their kids to enjoy it. Whatever is going on there. It's still a private event and it's hard to legislation about this matter. And any time that like conservatives would try to have protests, they would be outnumbered by armed Antifa, which is another disturbing phenomenon is that uh, going along with this is that the far left has now taken up gun ownership, uh, which some of the Second Amendment people have been like soyjacking over this and saying how awesome it is. I think it's a very concerning fact because the law and society and morals are on the side of the far left to use their firearms against evil homophobes racist and transphobes which there is not that type of social support for right-wingers to use guns and self-defense look at the kyle rittenhouse case he almost went to jail for life simply for using his gun to protect himself thankfully he did not go to jail but it cost him uh millions of dollars to keep himself out of out of jail but there's been several cases of, you know, leftists using their firearms to either threaten or shoot people and them facing no jail time. Or if they get shot for threatening somebody, that person goes to jail. There's a interesting case of a, of a story in 2020 where this uh, army sergeant, who's also a furry, by, by the way, I think there's two cases of people who are furries using a firearm against leftists. Um, interesting matter that furries are, are doing more damage against the left than, than all these right wing militias. I guess furries are our last line of defense. But anyway, this guy, he was not dressed in a furry costume at the time, but he, he was stopped by one of these, um, roadblocks are these uh uh that the left set up during the riots in 2020 and there's some guy came over to him with a rifle and was like threatening him 
and was like, you know, yelling at him and clearly trying to intimidate him. And the guy feared for his life and he shot him and killed this leftist. And they originally ruled it as like necessary self-defense, but due to political pressure, they're now uh, charging that guy with a serious crime. I don't know. I, I forget if it's murder or if it's uh, manslaughter, but he's being charged with something. I kind of shows is that they a lot of these guys they can you know set up roadblocks and these and these pro patrols of their own that are completely outside the law and the law allows it and if you try to resist them uh, you take it up so and it, you're even seeing this at these anti you know armed guys outside of a you know a drag queen story hour you know if one of those guys used his firearm against one of those right wing protesters who maybe got in a scuffle with him that person would not face Anywhere near the repercussions that Kyle Rittenhouse did for using his firearm to protect his life. That guy could even just like shoot somebody who wasn't even threat physically threatening him and probably, possibly not even face murder charges for that. So, or even manslaughter. He may, they may rule it at self-defense depending on, uh, where it happens. You know, I could easily see that happen in Seattle or Portland or Austin that the local jurisdiction, you know, district attorney doesn't want to charge. It's like, oh, this evil bigot was threatening, was yelling at him. He had to use his rifle. Uh, so that's actually a disturbing trend. Uh, but I'll go, that's something more, uh, go into in the year of like what happens with the revolutionary moment, but, Going back to the point about the drag queen story hour is that that has like taken over most of all their social concerns. There's even, it's even outweighed, uh, the focus on the border crisis, which the border crisis is something that directly impacts a lot of people. You know, we had over 3 million illegals cross into America this year. And I think it's for five straight months we've had over 200,000 migrants who've been detained at the border. And those are just the ones who've been detained. There's been an estimated 50,000 uh, migrants every month or so who have escaped detection. So there, the estimate for fiscal year 2022, which goes from October to uh, 2021 to October 2022, 2.4 million illegals were uh, encountered at the border. And there's an estimated, I think, 600,000 who got away. So 3 million. Maybe even more got away. I mean, that's a, that's a guesstimate. And that number is probably going to rise, especially what's going on with Title 42. I mean, the Supreme Court ruled that this enforcement mechanism, that's the only thing, the only enforcement mechanism that the Biden administration has kept from Trump era. It allows them to expedite deportation of these migrants that they catch at the border uh, under public health law, under public health reasoning. It was used, uh, for COVID, but they've just extended it because it's necessary to stem the tide, the flood at the border. Even if that stays in place for a, you know, significant amount of 2023, the border numbers are still going to be very high. We're still going to have probably 200,000 migrants per month. Over 12 months, you know, that's all. <laughs> It'll probably be, we'll have at least more, we'll probably even have a higher number of migrants detained at the border than even for fiscal year 2022, for fiscal year for 2023. If for some reason Title 42 is scrapped uh, before the summer or even before the late spring, you know, in a few months, like those numbers are going to be higher. You could even see 3 million or more migrants apprehended at the border and god knows how many gotaways uh which is the term used for those who escape detection and escape detention when they cross on the border and those border numbers have cost because those migrants are put placed somewhere 
they're let go in these rural Texas towns that don't have the resources resources to to you know to shelter them or to take care of them, or they're sent to you know red state cities like Chattanooga and Tennessee, various other places. You know, they're sent. This has a real world impact on people where you could be living in your nice small town, and then like a hundred migrants show up, and you're like, we have no idea what to do with these people, which is a big reason why Texas began busing them to these uh, sanctuary cities. And so did Arizona because they wanted, because these towns were like, we don't want these people. We have no resources for them. It's ruining our way of life. And they're like, ha, here, we'll take them and send them to places where they're welcome. Even though, um, <laughs> those cities began complaining about those migrant folks. But even with that stuff, with the exception of, of DeSantis's, uh, Martha's Vineyard stunt, which was a pale imitation of what Greg Abbott has been doing in Texas and was only 50 migrants and all 50 of those migrants are now on a pathway to citizenship and DeSantis backed away from it. All that stuff still and what Twitter was tweeting about and focusing on and even conservative media it was all drag queen story hour, which I find it's like, you know, yes, it's very outrageous, but it's harder to act on it. And it's harder to translate into political um, into po- political policy on what to do about that matter because it's more of a social and cultural issue that's happening. And yes, I do believe we, in a sane society, we would not have Drag Queen Story Hour to children, but it involves a larger process of changing society and culture. And But at the same time, people just kept being fixated on it and outrage to the detriment of focusing on other issues, whether it's anti-white racism, open borders, open borders, and even what's going on in schools and the racial preferences that are uh, discriminating against whites and Asians, all of that fell aside to focus on Drag Queen Story Hour. So I understand why it's outrageous is that I think it gets more clicks and, and engagement, but I think in terms of politics, it should be secondary to the major issues. I think the border crisis is a far bigger concern than Drag Queen Story Hour. I'm not saying that Drag Queen Story Hour is good. Not saying that we shouldn't care about it. I'm just saying that there's a hierarchy here and anti-white racism, open the border crisis are more important. And I think when it came to the midterms, that stuff didn't really translate. And even with the trans stuff, it's like, you know, in Michigan, the governor there and most of the Republican ticket ran on the issue of trans athletes and women's sports. They made ads about it. It was a major focus. And they got clobbered in Michigan. This issue did not play that well, even though it was a very much of a conservative issue du jour. Like they're like, this is so important about, uh, you know, there may be a male track athlete uh, beating all the girls in, in track. You know, that issue didn't translate at all. And that, I think that resulted in some of the disappointing midterm results is that we began focusing on issues that are very outrageous and crazy. But for whatever reason, it, they get a collective shrug from the general population. And immigration was an issue that greatly favored Republicans, but they didn't focus on it enough, uh, especially the open border stuff. So that's uh, something I noticed uh, throughout the year in 2022. I uh, Hopefully in 2023 it changes, but I still see uh, uh, people constantly posting drag queen. I mean, there are so many incidents. It's like very blackpilling, and I try to, you know, I'm already blackpilled about some other stuff or dour about some stuff, and I have a limited amount of things to be blackpilled about and, and dour about. And I think just like this, 
you know, there's a little bit too much focus on that, on that issue. And going into the new year, I mean, people are like soyjacking over DeSantis, you know, investigating one drag queen story hour in um, our drag queen event. They're not even story hours. They're now just like full on drag shows. <laughs> That's actually a thing. It was like a drag show for kids. I have a feeling that this could be a typical DeSantis stunt that they just have an investigation, nothing happens, and uh, conservative media forgets that there was actually no result from this. But then they'll all pretend DeSantis canceled drag queen shows for kids in t- Florida. Now this all sets up to discuss the midterms. We've discussed about this a lot. And this has been an important issue because all of the trends that we saw throughout 2022 politically came together for the midterms or to impact the midterms. And as we all know, Republicans had a disappointing results. I had a tweet uh, today where I said, uh, Republicans lost the midterms. I don't want to go that far, but I was using that in the, the conversational sense with R.M. McIntyre, who was saying, who's trying to claim that there's been massive W's uh, the right has been taking. Uh, we like R.M. You can, we can have disagreements with people. Uh, but I was just simply looking at the larger picture of what happened in 2022, and the midterms were a disappointing result, to say the least. Now, as I said before, the midterms are the mainstream media and the internet right were on the same page about the midterms. Everyone expected a huge blowout Republican victory, including yours truly. But there were factors that we just did not consider going into the race. I think one... Abortion played a bigger role in the election than what everyone besides liberals were wanting to believe. I, even I was saying, ah, it doesn't look like it's going to be that big of a role, of a role in the election, but it, it appeared to have enough of a role, and at least in some races, such as in Pennsylvania, some of these congressional races, and possibly even in Arizona. Other issues were the, I think people really did not like the stolen election stuff or fixating on 2020 election. That was a factor in Pennsylvania, in Georgia, or in the Georgia primaries rather than the Georgia uh, general election. I think Herschel Walker himself had uh, would have won the race if he had been anyone else. I think all of his scandals made him lose, but it's remarkable that even someone with uh, multiple allegations of paying for abortions nearly won the race. It, you know, the, it does show that Georgia probably, it, whatever other Republican they would have had would have won probably by at least five points. That's the one race where I say it was definitely candidate quality. Uh, elsewhere, there's other trends, but in Arizona, the stolen election stuff really impacted there. I think that hurt Masters and Kerry Lake. It hurt uh, Mastriano big time. Mastriano had also a lot of other problems uh, as well running in Pennsylvania and a couple of other places too where they were essentially saying that their election was stolen in 2020 and people running on that race. People, a big factor in America right now is that people want to move beyond 2020, both when it comes to the election and into COVID and even the riots people want to forget about, even though they shouldn't forget about the riots. But the right really wants to relitigate 2020, while the rest of the public just doesn't want to. Or even going into 2021, uh, you know, cause people don't want to be reminded of the lockdowns again. They don't want to be reminded of, they don't, they're not ready for Nuremberg tribunals 
over COVID response, and especially with the VAC stuff, which a lot of people are now wanting to campaign on. It may work in a Republican primary, and the same way with talking about the stolen election in 2020 worked well in Republican primaries. When it comes to general election, it does not play well at all. People have moved on beyond this. Over 80% of Americans got some type of COVID vaccine. I think there is some stuff to talk about with the vaccine and stuff and how it's lack of effectiveness or it was not nearly as effective as they claimed it would have been. There's a lot more side effects from it than people, than these people like Dr. Fauci want to admit. There's stuff to talk about, but making that a major campaign focus when over 80% of Americans got the vaccine and most of those Americans are voters and then telling them like they have uh, something inside them that's going to kill them in five years, or it's a satanic mind virus. I don't think that's going to play well in the in a general election. Yeah, there are ways to investigate it and and that, but making that a major focus is is same. And say with the COVID stuff, I think people just moved on from this. Yeah, people don't like Dr. Fauci in the same way they did in 2020. Or is it really politically popular to you know? Arrest him. I mean, and first off, they're not going to arrest him. Like, who's going to arrest him? The, Depart- the Biden's Department of Justice? Uh, the Republican House leadership? You know, there's all these uh, um, exaggerated demands, like saying that Rep- House Republicans need to arrest Jack Dorsey and House Republicans need to arrest Dr. Fauci. It's like, they're not entrusted with this, with this power. Maybe they should be, but they're not. And people need to accept that reality. But going back to the midterms, Relitigating 2020 was not a big uh, winner. And the the fact that people, you know, whatever election irregularities and things that went wrong in 2020 election, and obviously the way that social media, mainstream media colluded with the government and these other powerful institutions to rig it against Trump through media coverage, what information was allowed to the public, uh, the extremely loose uh, mail-in ballot rules, you know, that stuff to look into, but like telling people that their vote was that the way that they had a vote in 2020 was completely rigged and stolen. It is not working. It is not a politically powerful. It's not a politically popular message as we saw in Arizona. Carrie Lake was arguably not. Even, I'm not even going to say arguably. She was the most charismatic and dynamic candidate in 2022, Republican or Democrat. She was getting wild crowds. People, she was a true star and celebrity. But due to the fact of probably the, you know, the nature, the wormy nature of swing voters, and they're like, well, this person seems too extreme, and they're challenging the election. I just can't vote for the star. I'm going to vote for the, uh, the PTA, the worst, the boring, uh, PTA president that is, uh, Katie Hobbs. I wouldn't even call her a PTA president. She's just like a horrible guidance counselor, high school guidance counselor. And her voice is terrible. And somehow she still won just because of how the nature of swing voters and how they were able to paint Carrie Lake and Blake Masters as extreme in Arizona. And some of that was done to this whole election stuff that they kept campaigning on. By 2024, the people definitely do not want to relitigate the 2020 election in 2024. They didn't want to relitigate in 2022. They definitely don't want to relitigate in 2024. Maybe they should. Maybe it's the right thing to do, but it's not what plays well in a general election. It's the same with abortion. But I think even the larger issue besides all that is that Americans are far more complacent and content 
than they were just a year ago, and it was due to the lifting of COVID and the return to a degree of normality. The fact that the NFL ratings are record highs, and despite the fact that the NFL still has end racism stenciled in to at least one end zone in every stadium, and the fact that they're still promoting all this social justice stuff and a lot of woke, other woke garbage, and even though conservatives have spent uh, several years saying, go woke, get woke, go broke, and, you know, they it, just a few years ago, every conservative would agree with boycotting the NFL. Now everyone has just returned to it and conservatives lash out at anyone who dares criticize the NFL or says that you shouldn't watch it. As my mentions can attest anytime I bring this up, I have several people who have vendettas against me simply for talking about the NFL. But yes, I don't want to beat a dead horse on the NFL. I think that that just shows where the American public is now. They're not as angry and as desiring for change as Republicans thought they were. The fact that Biden finally allowed them to go back to NFL games without masks, without having to worry about vax mandates, without having their kids' school locked down, and that they're able to return to how life was largely like in 2019, that was a huge relief to people. And people were like, well... You know, maybe life's not so bad. Maybe I'll just vote Democrats because I'm so glad that they ended COVID, even though they really didn't. Or it's hard to say that they were responsible for that. They just did this for political gain. Or I'm just not going to be, you know, go out to vote. And it really feels like Republicans are going to be too extreme and, and create radical change. When I'm actually really happy with the status quo now is that people were really unhappy with the status quo in 2020 and 2021. In 2020, I think the COVID stuff both helped and hurt Republicans. The lockdown stuff continuing on into the fall when there was a lifting in the summer. And the same thing happened in 2021, I think helped Republicans, but at the same time, COVID hysteria hurt them. It, you could say that it was an even, uh, even split on that. Uh, and instead, it, but everyone who was voting in 2020, whether they were voting for Trump or voting for Biden, they were voting for a change from the way life was in 2020. When people voted for Republicans in 2021, they were voting against the status quo. They wanted change. In 2022, People, because the status quo had changed dramatically from 2021 to 2020, people were happy with the status quo and they voted for the status quo by voting for Democrats. But the thing to remember is that Republicans won the popular vote. So in, and I think it's due to in these, some of these red states like Missouri and Tennessee, there was a huge turnout and Republicans blew out the competition. There was no real competition there. And in Florida is another example. And even in a state like New York and even California, the, the races were a little bit more competitive or the congressional races were pretty competitive, is that that made up for a national popular vote. But when it came down to these critical battleground states of Pennsylvania, namely Pennsylvania, Arizona, you know, and the, the uh, statewide races, and even in Nevada, well, in Nevada is an interesting case where the governor, who's more moderate than the, the senator running uh, Laxalt, he won. Laxalt barely lost. And so it's, you know, the disappointing results are mainly due to just a few races not going uh, the way Republicans expected, mainly in Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Nevada, and the Georgia Senate race, which, as I said, if they had picked anyone else besides Walker, they would have won easily. 
So it's really dependent on these races. But I think that Democrats were able to betray Republicans as really more extreme and threatening the status quo, which people were happy with the status quo. The only thing that these normies were upset about was like the changes to abortion laws, which made them more inclined to vote Democrat. And the economy, the the economy is yet to really punish people. The recession is really yet to be felt. And it's a very weird recession by how things going and inflation has cooled cooled off in later months of 2022. So there was not this much of a desire for change. It was more of a contentment with the status quo. And I think that that's probably the best factor to explain the midterms. It's certainly not Trump. People want to blame Trump for this, but if you're looking at all these candidates, Mastriano was going to win the primary regardless of Trump's endorsement. And the whole right loved Mastriano, even though they hated on Oz, even though Oz did far better. They're like, Mastriano was a great candidate. Mastriano was a horrible candidate for Pennsylvania. He was going to lose. And then they blamed Trump for Bullduck and New Hampshire. It doesn't matter who, what Republican they had. That Republican was probably going to lose in New Hampshire. It was a difference of between losing by 10 points and losing by five points. Uh, you know, they had a moderate Republican who they all praised as one of the best candidates of the field. And this guy did what all these conservative commentators should say. And he told Trump to fuck off. And he's like, I don't need Trump support. And he lost by like 14 points. He got destroyed. Uh, Joe Day. And they're like, this is the ideal candidate. We want boring fucking Republicans who excite no bun and are uncharismatic and are just focused on tax cuts. Well, this is the guy and he got destroyed. And then when it comes to Arizona... Kerry Lake was the most dynamic, the biggest star of this campaign, and everyone was thrilled with Kerry Lake until it's determined she lost. Now all these people are like, Kerry Lake was a terrible candidate. And she was the woman she was running against was a horrible establishment Republican who wants to give free benefits to illegal immigrants. Like, that's terrible. Who cares if that woman would have won? She would have been a terrible governor. And it's the same with Blake Masters. You know, Blake Masters, they want to say he's extreme. Like, the next candidate was Jim Lamont, who would have probably also lost too. Maybe by a lesser margin, but everything was dependent on Kerry Lake. It was really this nature that, you know, they were able to betray both Lake and Masters as extreme and threatening the status quo that a lot of these swing voters seem happy with. Laxalt barely lost. He could have, you know, maybe if there had been a few different things changed, he could have won. And so it really just comes down to those three states and Laxalt, everyone supported, regardless of Trump. Everyone supported Herschel Walker. Mitch McConnell supported Herschel Walker in October of 2021. Everyone in the establishment party was behind Herschel Walker. There was no real challenger to him. And then when it, scandals broke, they're like, oh, Trump foisted it on him, him on us. It's all his fault. They were all happy with Laxalt. They were all happy with Oz. Oz would have done uh, just as better, just as well as the um, McCormick. I think it was Roger McCormick who was the guy who was the hedge fund guy who came in second. That guy probably would have also lost too. And Kathy Barnett would have done as poorly as Doug Mastriano. So blaming it all on Trump when the, all these candidates were supported by the establishment and when they were not as supported by the establishment, such as Lake and Masters. They didn't get, they didn't, they lost winnable races. I think it's, it's, it's just a way of Republicans not wanting to do any introspection 
on themselves and wanting to blame it all on Trump. You know, they don't want to change the abortion policy, which for whatever reason, power to them, but I think they should be honest about that. They instead just want to blame Trump. They also don't want to blame their election strategy of where they put money. And they also don't want to blame, they also don't want to admit that they backed a lot of these terrible Trump candidates that they supported as well and dumped a ton of money in. They dumped a lot of money into Oz and into Walker. I don't even think Oz was that terrible of a candidate. He wasn't that exciting for what MAGA, America First people want. But if you look at him on paper, he was exactly what they, you know, a moderate charismatic guy. That's what the establishment wants. And he lost probably because of just the way Pennsylvania is right now and how he, he got saddled with a terrible gubernatorial candidate. But the midterms in themselves by, I, I'm saying the general factor is that the American people, or at least swing voters, are content with the status quo and they felt that Republicans threatened the status quo, is a good indication of how separated the internet right is from reality in that, you know, this whole year I've been seeing threads about how civil war is upon us, Americans are ready for revolution. People are, you know, there's a famine about to hit us. You know, all these wild theories about what America is like and what Americans are thinking. And then when we have a time to prove it, the Americans are the NPCs that vote rebuked Republicans. And we've been talking about how there's a silent majority that's extremely based, that's ready to overthrow the libtard order. And instead they went and voted for the libtard order and the libtard status quo. And I think this does take some, you know, reflection on where we're at and going forward. I'm not saying from the midterms, I'm not that pessimistic to say that Republicans will now lose all elections going forward. That's clearly not the case. I think there are some, it may not, they may win elections in a way that we wouldn't like uh, going forward, or they may win elections in a way that we do like going forward. It's not that pessimistic. It's just a reflection of where what America's mood is right now. And we got we misread America's mood at this moment and the conditions that are in America. You know, everyone talks about Vi America. You know, we're in uh, dystopia right now. But most Americans think that we're it's awesome like right now. You know, they're, you know, finally going back to their normal life, normal activities. They, they may worry about their job being kept in, the, in, in what appears to be a recession, but it's all okay. At least they can, you know, watch the game on Sunday. They can bet. They can, Sports betting now makes them happy. You know, women are able to do whatever uh, their activities if they're not into sports betting into football. And so most Americans are relatively happy with the conditions right now. And America in itself in a larger picture rather than just the current conditions, there's so much abundance of prosperity in our country that it's able to soothe a lot of the, the discontent that we may see in our country. And really, people who are online are more discontent than the average person. The average person may be open to more of our ideas. I wouldn't maybe I wouldn't say the average person. The average conservative is far more open to our ideas than they were five or ten years ago. But the average NPC person is you know, uh, it's probably further away from our ideas than they were five, 10 years ago. I wouldn't say five years ago, but 10 years ago. 
And that's something we just have to grapple with. I don't think, you know, the Republican Party is not doomed. Everyone wants to talk about, you know, we talked about demographics or destiny, but Republicans did really well among Hispanics. We won nearly 40% of the Hispanic vote to pay, based on some exit polls. Really what we're losing is college-educated whites, which if you go into right-wing Twitter, it's you know, some people want think the solution is to... Uh, wage a Pol Pot uh, extermination campaign against college-educated whites. And the real enemy is any white person who works, uh, who lives near a population center or has a white-collar job, and we have to uh, destroy them all, which uh, I don't think that's going to win you uh, much uh, support. But everyone just, like, goes to this coping mechanism when something goes wrong and people double down on fantasies with happen. And so for a lot of Republicans and a lot of people on our side, even the distant right, they all decided that Trump was the real problem, not Trumpism, obviously. They all want to defend Trumpism and nationalism, and that what we really need is a more authoritarian, uh, a greater version of Trump, which could be the case. I'd be a fan of that, but I don't think that was reflected in the election results. And people don't want to reflect on the fact of how abortion impacted Republicans and hurt Republicans in the in the 2022 election. It may not hurt people. It may not hurt Republicans in 2024 if people have moved on from the issue and it's just solidified that some states are abortion is more restricted or even banned versus other states where it's more uh, liberal. That may be the case in 2024, but people need to see how it impacted 2022. But people don't want to see that because that. Um, eats at some of their delusions and fantasies they have about the American public. And it's much easier to uh, say that it was rigged, that the entire election was stolen, and that the real problem was that Trump wasn't based enough, and that's really where we are. I think that there's a lot of copium that comes out. I really do think, unfortunately, our side, it's not just like the distant right, but it's like the entire right is increasingly just becoming cope-servatives, is that once there's this... Uh, setback that happens to us. Everyone just like comes up with some new cope that allows them to double down on their fantasies and delusions and not be con- and not face reality. I find one example of this is that this isn't something to deal with the midterms or anything that happened in 2022, but the summer riots of 2020 have been retconned by some right wingers to being a triumph of rural chuds against Black Lives Matter and Antifa. And this and this and this myth. Uh, you know, BLM and Antifa tried to take over the rural hinterlands and they were met by violent force from the rural chuds who were all armed and, and they chased them off at gunpoint and even maybe disappeared some of these guys when there is no evidence of this happening in a- anywhere. I mean, there's one case in, in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, which really didn't face much of an Antifa or BLM presence. And there was a bunch of guys who came up armed and this showed that these areas are protected. But now all these same people say Coeur d'Alene is a liberal bug hive. And also these same people can't uh, fend off a gay pride parade or numerous other crazy things that are happening in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Well, that's the only evidence. But this is now accepted uh, belief among a lot of the right because it supports a lot of the cope and delusions that our own side has. And I think a big factor for the right is or what should be an attractive feature is that we face the world as is. We speak uncomfortable truths that no one else will say. 
But unfortunately, what I've seen in development on our side, and this is, you see all this even in, in many times in 2017 and even 2016 and throughout the time, is that a lot of people like to comfort themselves with uh, big myths or big lies about what where things are going in order to rile up the audience. But I find more and more that our side is unwilling to speak truth and to speak honestly about the world around us. And they're more willing to cater to what the audience wants and to nourish the audience with delusions and lies than to give truths to people. And I see this that, you know, despite what happened in 2020 or 2022 and the setbacks we faced is that going into 2023, people are just recommitting to this uh, approach and a feeling that we're on the cusp of victory and that everything we've done in the past and all the rhetoric we've used was highly effective and we just need to double down on it and we need to get more, you know, what we needed to offer is these Black pill saying that like the Republican Party's dead, but at the same time we offer these grandiose delusions that saying the real, but we can easily take power and wipe away the GOP and all the corrupt politicians if we just read Carl Schmidt or something. And this is what people really say. And they are, they're like revolution is on the horizon. Just look at the Taliban. And then you ask like, what are, what are some groups that are like the Taliban in America? And then, you know, people just get mad and, and show off the only degree of right wing organizing there is. And that's just getting mad at other people on the right for uh, saying something they disagree with or saying something interesting as what we're seeing too often. And I think this is a real weakness is that we do have a much larger audience than we did five or six years ago. But we shouldn't just be trying to cater and coddle them and just tell them what they want to hear. We need to tell people what they need to hear. And we need to keep promoting our message to a larger mainstream, but we're not at the point of seizing state power or anything. We're not in the point of just like everything needs to be propaganda to hype up our own side. We can have that stuff, but I think it's more important to speak truth to power than to speak. Uh, I, I guess it would be saying speak delusions to reality. <laughs> I don't know. That may be the way of saying it, but I think too many oftentimes people want to just say what their audience wants to hear rather than what the audience needs to hear. And people hate me a lot because I say what I believe is true rather than what I believe the average right-wing audience member wants to hear. So that's why some people accuse me of blackpilling and view me as an enemy or a federal agent or what have you for these reasons. But, I, you know, I'm going to keep saying that stuff as we go forward. But the midterms and everything else should be a wake-up call. And I'm not even I'm not even finished with the year in review because there's one final subject to discuss or a couple final subjects to discuss because I do have some white pills at the end. Uh, the one thing that this is not a white pill, but it's Donald Trump. And Trump, you know, right after the midterms announced he's running for president. And I did this in my last, highly respected last week and asked, if, is he actually running for president? And, you know, even a week, you know, nearly a week and a half later after that podcast episode, he still has not shown the evidence that he is uh, seriously committed to running for president. And the indictment still hangs over his head. You know, the January 6th committee recommended criminal charges, not for seditious conspiracy, but for things that related to January 6th and the election. And it appears the special counsel is investigating that. It's not just the documents. There's other uh, charges that are going into that. 
And I, I still believe that there's going to be an indictment against him. Uh, I'd be very white-pilled if this was it. You know, if I was going by the standards of other right-wing content creators, I would say Trump is definitely not going to get indicted. Trump is definitely going to be winning the general election by a landslide because I would be wish I would be wish casting rather than offering serious analysis. And that Trump, when he becomes the White House, he will name Scott M. Greer as communications director. Um, I am not wish casting. I would I would love for that to happen, but I'm seeing things honestly is what is going to happen. If Trump is indicted, he cannot win the general election. Uh, he can't. I mean. I, there's a 2% chance. I'll give him a 2% chance that he could win. May I'll, you know what? We'll give him 1% chance. I will not say that it's totally impossible, but it's nearly impossible for him to win. So we'll give him a 1% chance if he gets indicted. If he gets indicted, he will, the chances of him getting convicted are pretty high. I would say, you know, more than 50% chance, probably even higher than that. He gets convicted depending on where this, uh, it takes place. If it takes place in Florida, I give it 50-50 from right now, depending on the charges. If it's in D.C., uh, I give him 60 to 75% chance. I mean, these are rough estimates. I'm just throwing out numbers, but I would say it's a very good chance. And if he gets convicted, he's obviously not going to, I would say, 100% chance he is not going to win the general election. And so these are facts that we have, but Trump is clearly the best, is still the best candidate for 2024. And regardless of what happens, we should still support him. But we have to be realistic about the chances of what could happen there. And I don't really see DeSantis as having the same magic or the same spirit as Trump. I also don't trust him to carry on America First principles and ideas like Trump can. I, I don't think he's instinctually based like Trump is. He is a politician. I mean, he would be better than Tim Scott or some of these other people, but he would still not, it would be a reluctant support. It'd be, you know, instead of getting what you want, you instead get the store brand version of Trump. And it's, it's not as, you know, it's like a store brand cereal uh, instead of like, you want Cheerios, maybe not Cheerios, We'll say Rice Krispies. That's a really good choice. Instead, you get like the the crappy store brand version, which kind of looks like Rice Krispies. It can pass off as Rice Krispies, but the taste sucks and it's, it's kind of bland. And that's really what I view of Ron DeSantis as a store brand Trump. Now, while Trump is not showing the magic, I'm still have hope that Trump can show the magic that he displayed in 2016 and at moments in his presidency and even in parts of 2020, that he can reconnect with that magic. He can have epic rallies. He can be making some really bold statements that advances uh, certain controversial issues that no one else wants to talk about. I still believe he can do that. You know, he did that when he highlighted anti-white racism uh, at rallies in 2021 and 2022. And I think he can still do that in uh, the 2024 race. You know, that'd be a huge deal if he began really hammering home anti-white racism and speaking out about that. I think that could really uh, kickstart the magic and also him humiliating some of these idiots who are trying to run against him like Pompeo, Pence, Christie, Haley. You know, these people like having these goofball candidates for him to oppose could really light a fire within him. So I still have hope, but we still haven't seen that yet from Trump. And it's been a complete reversal. You know, before the midterms, Look, even with a indictment hanging over his head, it looked like he was going to crush the competition in the primary easily. He was conservative media loved him. 
people were hoping he would be restored to Twitter. But, you know, that night everyone turned on him, you know, for a lot of it for opportunistic reasons. And they're moving to DeSantis and they're trying to make themselves believe that DeSantis is Trumpism but better, uh, which is not the case at all. But I still have hold out hope for Trump that he can get things back together, even though his month and a half of being a presidential candidate has been disappointing so far and lackluster. I think he just needs to start doing rallies and having opponents announce their campaigns for him to get on back on track. And if he does get indicted, it could set up an interesting moment for America where there can be a type of accelerationist Mind, I don't want to say accelerationist mindset, but it could accelerate and advance people's attitudes towards where the country is heading and create, you know, wake people up to what's going on. It's still not a victory, but there still could be interesting um, effects from it or interesting results from that. So not totally pessimistic and not giving up on Trump yet, but he does really need to get back on track. Now for some white pills. And the two big white pills I want to offer are Elon Musk taking over Twitter and European elections. Elon Musk take over Twitter was actually exceeded our expectations. I was cautiously optimistic about it. And even though there's still problems with Twitter, there's still people getting censored, there's still people not being allowed back. It's much better than it was before under the previous management and it's been approved. There are still some kinks and other things to work out. But it's definitely been exciting and it's also he's revealing a lot of the corruption and collusion that Twitter was engaged in during the you know elections and over COVID and how they censored. I think it's been a huge win and it's created a necessary conversation over free speech and given us an opportunity to express free speech more on one of the largest social media platforms in the world. And as long as Elon Musk runs Twitter it will be more free speech friendly. And this will be a huge deal in the coming years, especially when it comes up to the 2024 election, is that we will have this freedom again. The fact that Twitter was was incredibly censorious during the 2020 elections and after into you know 2021 was a you know a real killjoy for uh, the right, and it did impact. It heavily impacted the 2020 elections and our ability to get our message out there. But now with a more free Twitter, we can get back to spreading our message to a wider audience. And I think that's all a plus. So I would say the Elon Musk buying Twitter is a plus. The other thing is European elections were pretty good for the right. Viktor Orban, despite the entire globalist apparatus, Backing his opposition, one, uh, you know, his party won the majority again. He's remained president or rather prime minister of, of Hungary. And he is still a setting example of what a nationalist government should be like. I don't think you can have a directly model yourself after Hungary or at least Americans can't. But it still provides an inspiration for us that you can do these things in a Western country and I would still say Hungary is a Western country, even though, you know, Eastern Europe, whatever, former communist Soviet bloc country, Eastern bloc country, it's still a Western country. You can still get things done and do incredible things there and resist the globalist American empire and to the acclaim of your own people. So I think that's a white pill that Orban won. Um, Georgia Maloney and the Nationalist Coalition in Italy won. There are some disappointments with how she's governing, but I think... 
you know, she's trying, she's, you know, a little hesitant about what she should do. She just took over this job. I think she'll, it's still a big win for us that a nationalist took over one of the major European countries. I mean, Italy is more important than Hungary and the fact that they did well in the elections and a nationalist coalition took over creates a lot of opportunities for the right in Europe and to influence the European Union. I think that's a plus. And French elections, even though Le Pen did not win uh, the presidential election, National Rally, formerly known as National Front, became the third largest party in parliament. You know, it's the first time that they really, in a very long time, that they actually did well in their parliamentary elections. There may be another term for it. There's a lot of different elections in, in France, but we're going to call it their parliamentary elections. And they're now the third largest party there. They exceeded expectations. They thought they would only gain a few seats and then they became the third largest party. And now they can have a lot of sway in France. And I think that sets up for the nationalists to do even better in elections in the 2020s. Uh, and they may finally win the presidential election in 2027. And that would be a massive, massive victory for the right. That would be a total we're back moment. And I am optimistic about Europe and their elections. I still have a degree of optimism about America. But I think in America, as I outlined in you know last week's podcast, is that it really takes the threat of left-wing radicalism uh, coming to the fore here, becoming more popular and threatening people's property and income and lives for, you know, a real right to emerge and to gain power. I mean, we still had that with Trump, you know, and there's still cases that maybe another Trump could emerge without quite the threat of the left-wing radicalism, as I predicted, coming out. But I'm still optimistic about America to an extent. I think it's just we need a little bit more realism about where America is and where the American people are while still being having a degree of cop optimism and not being totally blackpilled and saying it's over. But even in Europe, you know, and I think even in Germany, you know, it's a country that I've always called, you know, dismissed and saying how pathetic they are. I think alternative for Deutschland is going to do much better in elections in the, in, in the future, even though they're under state surveillance and the state says that they're a threat to the constitutional order and all this crazy stuff. I still think that the fact that they're the one country that's like, uh, are the one party that's saying like, hey, let's be realistic about Russia. Uh, let's not jump into war. Let's not destroy our energy supply. And let's also resist immigration, immigration, mass immigration. There, I think they're going to get more popular. And I don't know. I'm, I'm, I don't think they have as good of a chance as National Rally coming to, you know, becoming the majority party like, um, like National Rally is in France, but they could have an influence over the CDU and make the CDU more nationalist, uh, which would be a positive effect. So I'm very optimistic about Europe, uh, Britain, United Kingdom excluded. Um, and uh, even if it is under, you know, the gaze watch, the globalist American empires watch, I still think that there's opportunities for Europe to do interesting things and to make positive change. And I still have an optimism about America as well. I do think, even though with a lot of the pessimism I've said, uh, over this podcast and the black pills I've offered, even though I would say they're clear pills, I think more and more people are waking up. More and more people are interested in our ideas than ever, than at any time since, I mean, maybe in a hundred years, you could say, at least in this country, that you, maybe you could go back to the 1960s. But 
More people are into our ideas than at any point in the 21st century. If you compare our situation, even in 2016 and 2017, more people are discussing our ideas than ever before. The average Republican believes in the Great Replacement. The average Republican believes anti-white racism is a real thing and a real threat to them. And so you're seeing positive developments, but you're also seeing elements where the average normie in America is becoming more complacent and just like tolerating the way things are. And that's really why you need something like left-wing radicalism to threaten them or to become a threat in order to wake them up. But I do think the average conservative is waking up and is much better than the average conservative was in 2015, in 2012, and even in 2017 and 2018. I think the conversation and the rhetoric they're using is much better. And this is due in large part to Tucker Carlson and Trump. And I'm also very white-pilled is that, you know, Tucker Carlson's still going to remain the top cable news host. He's still going to be spreading America First nationalist ideas to an audience of 4 million every night on Fox News. So there's a lot of things to look forward to. I just think that our side needs to be more realistic and more pragmatic about and about where we are and what we can accomplish and to stop trying to I think a big problem with right wing Twitter is that it becoming less of a political movement and more of a MMO RPG <laughs> and how everyone just kind of jumps on to play a character and play out their fantasies rather than you know analyzing the real world and figuring out real world solutions to our problems. I think this can be easily corrected. I think it just, you know, it takes some time to people accept the present world and move from there rather than, you know, being content with delusions while the world changes in a way that is completely different from the analysis offered by right-wing Twitter. So my concluding thoughts is we're going to have more truth and less simple entertainment for the crowds going into 2023. I'm still going to be honest. I'm going to still be telling it like it is. Whether our audience wants to hear it or not, that's just the way I'm going to be. And so I am looking forward to 2023. It should be another interesting year of happenings and new circumstances and new paradigms emerging. We just have to be there to offer a realistic assessment of what it, it of what's going on and how we can positively impact what's out there. So those are my concluding thoughts on this day on this week's highly respected, even though it was an IQ supplement. Next week we're going to be back to our normal schedule, even though most people are taking Monday off to celebrate the new year. Highly respected is going to be back Monday, and we're also going to have another great IQ supplement for you guys next week. So until next time. Stay respected.